Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of the story collection American Masculine by Shan Ray. Publishers Weekly calls it a book of unsettling power. Dave Eggers says, quote, Shan Ray's prose brings to mind Cormac McCarthy and Annie Prue, but is thankfully entirely his own. His work is lyrical, prophetic, brutal, yet ultimately hopeful, end quote. That's American Masculine by Shan Ray. It's available now wherever books are sold from Grey Wolf Press. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Shan Ray is the guest. He is the author of American Masculine, the story collection, winner of the Bakeless Prize, critically acclaimed. Uh, I was just listening to the playback of our conversation, and I found myself kind of, kind of listening as if it were the first time. It's a good one. Shan's a good guy, and uh, he's had an interesting life. Not only is he a good author, he's also uh, you know, a really talented athlete. He played college basketball at Pepperdine. He could dunk. Uh, and then he's also a professor. He's got his doctorate. He's a professor of leadership studies. And, uh, you know, he grew up on an Indian reservation. He had this sort of uh, unusual childhood in Montana, in the wilds of Montana. Uh, went to high school at an Indian reservation, even though he's not a Native American. And then he's also got this kind of, you know, really rich spiritual life going on. And, uh, you know, I started listening to all this and it's impossible not to be impressed. And then my brain started going and I started to compare and my wheels started spinning and I started thinking about my own athletic career and how it was modest at best. And I started thinking about how I'm not a professor of leadership studies and how I was the kicker on my high school football team for one year, the kicker. And uh, I only had one field goal attempt my entire career, the entire season, the coach only let me try one field goal. Usually we scored touchdowns or, you know, we went for it on fourth and didn't make it. So I got one shot. It was on the home field and uh, the snap came in high. I'll never forget it. It came in high. So it screwed up the timing. I stutter stepped. 
I, I went, you know, on the follow-through, my toe caught the turf, and I wound up popping the ball up way up high into the air. It was straight down the middle. The aim was perfect, but it wound up hitting the crossbar and bouncing into the end zone. Hitting the crossbar and, you know, bouncing into the end zone. And uh, that was it. That was the extent of my kicking career. And so I started thinking to myself, what am I good at? You know, I don't have rare athletic talent. That's been apparent since I was a kid. Uh, you know, I'm an okay athlete, but I'm nothing special. So do I have a good brain? You know, what does a good brain mean? Does that mean that can I cut through complexity in a world that seems increasingly complex? You know, it seems like you have to be able to cut through complexity. The good minds, the good spirits, they find a way to distill things into their component parts and to somehow make living simple. The ability to cut through complexity. But for me, it seems like the older I get, the less I know. That's what I started telling myself. The older I get, the less I know the less certain I am of anything, of my ability to understand anything. And so then I thought about Don DeLillo and how he always says, you know, I write to find out what I know. I write to find out what I think. And then I think, well, you know, it's all ephemeral. It's all ever-changing. One minute I think I know something, the next minute it's disproven. One minute I think I know what I think, the next minute I don't. So who are these people with exceptional minds? You know, people who, like, know their minds, who are confident in their own beliefs. And then there's this, uh, you know, this uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. I went and like hunted it down on the internet and wrote it down where he says, to believe your own thoughts, to believe what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. And I started nodding and thinking, that's it. You know, to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That's it. That's what genius is. But then I started thinking, what if in your private heart it's dark and like demented and there's a lot of rage and stuff like that? There are people who, in their private heart, are thinking some pretty twisted shit. So, you know, it sort of contradicts the whole Emerson thought, or at least it does for me momentarily, or it mitigates it somehow. And so then I start to think to myself when I get into these modes, you know, where I'm sort of spiraling in thought, that's when I'll usually reach for a book, or I'll spin around in my desk chair and I'll just start looking at the spines, thinking to myself, where is it? Where is the book? You know, where is the writer who can say complex things in a simple way rather than saying complex things in an ornate and in, in grandiose and needlessly complex way? And then I think about a guy like Montaigne. You know, I've been told to read these Montaigne essays that Montaigne was a great thinker. I have the book. I leaf through it sometimes. And then today I was thinking about Montaigne and I wanted to know who was he really because I don't know his life story all that well. I know the very basics, but not the details, nothing really substantive. And so I went to Wikipedia, even though Wikipedia is not like the most uh, reliable source of information. And then I kept clicking on the Internet and I found I wound up finding this uh, anecdote anecdote about Montaigne and how he was once asked rhetorically if he had to choose, would he choose to burn his books or his children? And he said his children. And so I thought, well, was that a joke? Was he joking? Because nothing was mentioned about his tone. Like, was he being wry? Or was he being serious? Was the nature of his genius such that he like valued his artistic and intellectual pursuits more than his familial ones? Is that what it takes to be a writer like that and a thinker like that? And if so, doesn't that kind of mitigate part of the genius? You know, if you would actually elevate your books in, in level of importance over your own children, doesn't that sort of mean that you're not a genius? Is anyone a genius? So it's just... Uh, it's a search. It's me thinking to myself, where is life's, you know, where is the true genius? I think I fetishize genius. And I think what's, you know, 
what might be interesting about that, to me anyway, is the fact that, you know, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in Santa Claus. I claim no devotion to an organized religion. Uh, the one that I have the most connection to is Buddhism. I like Buddhism, and I think it's because the Buddhists are so emphatic and careful about making sure you know that the Buddha was just a man. He lived here. He wasn't fathered by like a god in the sky. There's nothing magical about it. He had parents. He had a trust fund, and then he gave it all up and walked naked into the woods and starved himself and slept on thorns for like six years in, in search of enlightenment. And I, I think to myself, who does that these days? I remember that kid, uh, the Buddha boy over in, you know, where was it? Was it somewhere in uh, Thailand? It wasn't Thailand. Maybe it was Thailand or Nepal. I think it was Nepal. And uh, that kid who sat under that tree, that banyan tree uh, for like, you know, six months and apparently didn't eat. Remember that? George Saunders went over there and saw him. He went over there for like Esquire or something. And that story really riveted me because it was like, maybe this is the kid. Maybe he's really doing this. I, I'm starving for that kind of story. I want that kid to write a book. It's, you know, it's a strange thing. I think that's why I got into books because I'm just, I, I have this like childish belief that there's somebody out there who's written the rule book, but there really isn't one. And I know that I think. And so then today, you know, in this like kind of tornado of thinking, I found myself going back to Vonnegut because Vonnegut to me functions as sort of this like avuncular, uh, saintly, uh, you know, genius. He's a genius. That's kind of it. He's, he's, he's like a, uh, he's a saint. He's a literary saint. And he wrote this poem towards the end of his life called Requiem, which goes like this. When the last living thing has died on account of us, how poetical it would be if earth could say in a voice floating up, perhaps from the floor of the Grand Canyon, it is done. People did not like it here. You know, and it's sort of a morbid thought. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of a downer, but it's also kind of funny and it's very Vonnegut. And I sort of liked it in the moment that I read it. It kind of made some sense to me. People, humanity, it's difficult. There's a lot of confusion. And I don't know if I have uh, the kind of brain. I don't, you know, I do have doubts about whether or not I have the kind of brain to be able to navigate life or the kind of intuition to be able to navigate life in a way that, you know, makes some degree of sense or, you know, I think about that kick. I think about kicking that football and how I hit it straight down the middle, but I just didn't have the distance. Like maybe that's where I am intellectually. Like maybe like I kind of have the right idea. I kind of have good instincts, but not enough to hit the, you know, the 52 yarder. Anyway, that's my sort of, uh, thought project for the day. And, uh, I'm going to read you a story, a short story because uh, I read this, you know, later, uh, just about an hour ago. And it was kind of the perfect punctuation mark to the whole thing. It's by Lydia Davis. It's one of my favorite Lydia Davis stories. It's really short. Uh, it's incredibly short and it's called getting to know your body. All right, here it goes. If your eyeballs move, that means that you're thinking or about to start thinking. If you don't want to be thinking at this particular moment, try to keep your eyeballs still. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, so and where are you in your car? I am. Oh, you are? Okay. Give me like a visual so, read on your, on your, you're, you're by some sort of body of water? Yeah, we're close. We're in between two bodies of water and we're in the forest, basically. Well, up in Seattle? Uh, in Spokane. Oh, in Spokane. Okay. Uh, well, I've never been to Spokane, so maybe start there. Like, I'm curious to know what Spokane is like. Yeah. Spokane is basically, you know, I mean, his, historically it was a city that hoped to be like the Chicago of the uh, West. So it had a lot of uh, mining industry early on. And so it also had, you know, like some designers of great parks and had a lot of neat things happening early on, you know, 19, early 1900s. Now it's uh, mostly hospitals. We've got like five hospital systems, um, some, some technology, a lot of universities, five university systems, and, um, and a lot of lakes and a lot of rivers. So there's 70 lakes in a 50-mile radius. And so you've got five hospitals. So they're, they're, they're shipping people into these hospitals, or is there, are there just right, a lot of... Right, not... exactly. Big, the biggest hospitals in the, uh, in the kind of the five-state region, basically. So a lot of heart um, patients and... You know, a lot of just good good hospital-type technology. All right. Well, I'm talking with Shan Ray, uh, author of the acclaimed story collection uh, American Masculine, which won the uh, – is it the Bakeless Prize? Yep, the Bakeless Prize, yeah. At the Bread, at the Bread Loaf Writers Conference gives out. Exactly. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about Bread Loaf? I'm not – this is one thing where I'm, I'm very deficient in the whole – Writers conferences, writers retreats, like I've never participated in any of that. So what what happens at Breadloaf? I'm with you. I've never participated yet either. Okay, so you didn't do that. You just submitted the story to the con. It was a contest, and, and it's a contest. And I mean, I get I have some knowledge of it. It's it's basically about ten days with a bunch of writers and editors and some agents, and and there's I guess there's craft lectures that go on pretty consistently, and then the people that are coming to work on their stuff uh you know like workshoppers they come in and do a do like an uh kind of kind of like an mfa style workshop like they send in their all their stories first and then whoever the leader of that workshop is goes over probably you know i would say a couple two or three stories a day and that group of meets with that writer and so younger writers like me are hooked up usually with a one you know more veteran writer so i'm with richard bausch during the 10 days and and I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it should be fun, I think. Oh, wait, so you're slated to go. Yeah, yeah. When is, so and when is this happening? Part of the prize is that you go to Bread Loaf as a fellow. Oh, okay, okay. So are there any nerves involved, or you pretty you feel pretty good about it? I don't, yeah, I don't feel too nervous, probably because it just seems like it'll be a, a great uh, semi-vacation of just listening to a bunch of great writers talk about what they're doing. Yeah, I guess. I get, the... to, hang out, I get to hang out and listen to <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it, it probably it's probably you know uh, going to be actually pretty great. And I, I guess I just for some reason this is my personal thing, but like I imagine these things, and it's like some sort of camp, and you can't leave, and you're in this room. And <laughs> I think it is a little bit like that because it seems like when I look at it online, you know, it's out in the middle of the kind of out in the middle of the forest, you know, and uh, there's like a big dorm like thing that you're standing in, so you are kind of isolated for sure. It's like prison. It's like writer's prison. <laughs> Writer's prison, that's right. Hmm. Kind, of like, so, kind of like debtor's prison. So now you've had an interesting uh, an interesting path in life. And, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of a, a you know, I, I now associate you with the, with the American West, you know, after reading your fiction and also having talked to you a little bit before this. And, uh, you know, your work obviously draws heavily from that. But I want to get into, uh, you know, how, you know, where you came up. You're from Montana. Uh, I want to hear about, uh, you know, the time that you spent living on, was it's the Cheyenne Indian Reservation? Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cheyenne. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we can start there, but I mean, talk a little bit about Montana. Uh, tell me about growing up there, where you grew up, uh, what childhood was like. Yeah. Montana is uh, still, you know, probably first love for me as far as places to be in the wilderness and vast, you know, very large state, fourth biggest state in the nation and only i think it still only has about nine hundred thousand people maybe a million in the whole state why is that just unforgiving climate or i mean it seems like a beautiful place i think it's very unforgiving and then you know there's not a lot of jobs so you know i think and the, the cities are not that big so again there's not a lot of jobs so i think it's just out of the way it's kind of a quiet uh wilderness it's very cold in the winters i mean very cold you got definitely have snow locked in for eight or nine months most of the time yeah yeah and you know it can be pretty dark winters too but but you know it's a it's a frontier beautiful wilderness areas so we grew up my family grew up more in the on the eastern side of the state in the beginning billings and also the northern shan reservation there and that's uh that's mostly flat plains you know like just kind of just high plains for hours and hours you know so the western side of the state is where the Rocky Mountain front comes down, just like a huge backbone through the whole western side. You know, and we lived there once I was in high school in Livingston, just right in the middle of the of the mountains, basically near the old entrance to Yellowstone National Park, about a, about an hour and a half from there. And did you pref- you preferred the mountains to the plains? They both have their own attraction, you know. And I was kind of when the stories finally came together, yeah, you know, there's a there's both. You know, they're kind of some of them are out there in the plains, and some of them are. And the mountains, I think the mountains have a majestic beauty to them. The plains are kind of kind of a quiet, desolate, but pretty uh, contemplative landscape, you know? Sure. Uh, so, they, I mean, it kind of has its own beauty, and it's not it's very, very different than the, than the mountains. But it has its own attraction, I think. A lot of, you know, a lot of horses, a lot of antelope, a lot of deer, you know. Did you grow up hunting yeah. and stuff? Or you like, can you, like, field dress an yeah. antelope? Uh, I, I can with my dad. I don't know if I, I mean, I know what it's about, but I don't know if I can do it by myself. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. I just, I just know the term, but yeah. I mean, like when you're field dressing, yeah. you're basically bleeding the thing. Is that what happens? No, yeah, that's a little different. So, so field dressing is generally like, okay, um, you shoot the animal and wherever you are, uh, you go down and, and you, you're taking everything with you right then, you know? So whatever you, whatever you are taking, which is usually, you know, you're quartering it. So all four quarters of the animal. And then, um, you know, all the main areas for, for eating, like the back straps and, um, you know, just putting all, getting all of that off of the animal, you, you, uh, you basically, um, and then you basically skin it 
and then you basically take all the edible materials, and if it happens to be an animal that you're wanting to, you know, do something with, like uh, if if it's a trophy animal and you want to, you know, have it go to the taxidermist and, you know, put the head in your house or something, you take the cape, which is sort of that area around the neck and below the head that goes up across the shoulders, and, and then you take the horns, you know, so... So it's just it kind of depends, but most most of the time it's not not a trophy animal. Most of the time you're just out there field dressing it because it allows you to pack it out pretty easily instead of dragging it, or you know you can just put it in your backpack. Okay, so I have technical questions here. This is this is raising all sorts of technical questions in my head. So you go hunting, you've got a rifle. Yeah. Assuming we it's a rifle, right? It's not like you're, right. you're going out there with a yeah. pistol or like an Uzi or something. Exactly. And you have a rifle, and, and usually people have their favorite, you know, the favorite type of rifle they're going to use, you know. For depending on what kind of animals, you know. Right, and then and then as far as like the field dressing goes, do you have like a machete? I mean, what are we using here? Uh, just a real sharp hunting knife, and uh, and that and then you have you also have a, you know, like a sharpening stone or a, sometimes it's not really a stone. Um, yeah, they have like sharpening tools also that are it's kind of like a, a little thicker than a pencil, maybe eight inches long, and you just have a you know maybe a ten to yeah, probably probably eight to ten inch hunting knife. Get that nice and sharp, and then you're just going to work. You also have a saw, bone, you know, small bone saw. You know? Yeah, I was going to say this. I mean, this is going to be have to be a, quite a sharp knife. Yeah, the knife just it's they're sharp and they move right through things. You know, and when an animal, you know, when it's freshly killed like that, it's also everything's warm, so the skin comes off. You know, the fur comes off with the skin a lot easier at that point. You know? God. Kind of comes right off like a knife is going right on that crease where you're peeling the skin back. Yeah. You know? And this doesn't mean this is something you were, you grew up around and with, so it doesn't like freak yeah. you out. No, we. I mean, we. That's what we. My dad was a teacher. He had you know very low salary. That was our food every year for sure. It was deer and elk, and you know you, you can't you know you basically couldn't afford to go get like a side of beef or something. Sometimes we'd get a side of beef from my grandpa, you know. Or because you I, shot your neighbor's cow. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> so that's like a that's like a gift when somebody you know like if a grandpa gave you that. Other than that, we're eating mostly deer meat, you know, deer steak and you know deer hamburger and mostly deer, but some some antelope and some elk here and there too. So you, I mean, so you go out in hunting season and then you're obviously storing, you're freezing it for the winter and stuff like that, or through yeah, the. Yeah, you get you get you you go out there, then you feel dressed out there. You bring all the meat back, and then you know at home, like in the garage, you're cutting it up into steaks, you know. Or you're taking it to a local uh, shop that's going to make it in hamburgers or sausages or jerky or you know things like that. All the different things. Wow, that's that's something else. And so, yep. uh, you know, you're raised uh, in this kind of like wild terrain. Like, what kind of like neighborhood? Like, what kind of situation was it? Were you like miles away from neighbors, or were you in some sort of community? We always lived pretty much in the towns, you know. Um, those, you know, the towns are small. So my mom, my mom grew up in a town of eight people, Cohagen, Montana. Eight, if you can imagine that. And you know, desolate Montana. Uh, I think one of the hilarious parts about that is it was, you know, service to the ranching community. Her mom was a postmaster, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of community people come in, get their mail from their, you know, old-fashioned mailboxes at that point, right? And and uh, she. They'd be talking with her, and she, a lot of times they'd just come on in and have some cinnamon rolls and just hang out for a while before they go back to their, you know, ranch or, you know, the different work that they were doing that day. And so she grew up in that town of eight. But here's that little tiny place, and it had uh, it had a store and two bars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. And and you've got people coming in in cars, or are they coming in on horses? Like what? 
Well, at that, when she grew up, I don't know. I'd have to ask her about like way back in the beginning. Definitely, people had horses a lot way back. But you know, when she, when she, when we were there in the summers when I was young, it was always cars and trucks. And, you know, I mean, people had horses and we rode horses and some at least. And and uh, but you know, they they weren't necessarily cruising them around though. So I've been around like I was at the Blackfeet Reservation last year, and you, you like this one, but almost everybody has horses on the reservation. That's like uh, that's like currency. You know, it's kind of nice. And lots of horses usually, you know. And um, but anyway, you're in the town of Browning, you know, which is a you know middle of nowhere town on a on a northern high line just off the east side of Glacier National Park. Um, and you know, just horses riding right through town. A couple of you know look like high school age students, but they're just riding the horses. Just drove the horses right through the drive through at uh, at Subway. Wow. <laughs> See, that's different. That's different living, but it's easy for me to idealize that. I can easily yeah. idealize that in my mind. I mean, it yeah. probably comes with its own set of drawbacks, but it seems like something that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the small towns, I think the reservations, and, you know, there is, you know, I think it's isolation, loneliness a lot of times. And so there's, there's plenty of drinking and plenty of violence and stuff like that. But there's a lot of good people, too. I mean, well, not that the drinkers are bad people, but, you know, there's a lot of people that are living solid lives, not necessarily you know, sold out to the, the pain of it, you know. Sure. And then there's also a lot of a lot of pain, you know. So it's and and I think reservations in general are pretty rough and pretty uh financially low, you know, high 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 rates of uh unemployment and all, all the things that come with that, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, you know, it's something I want to talk about uh, at greater length, but just before we get off this whole like uh Shan Ray is like a cowboy. He's an American cowboy. <laughs> Like you can, right. you can, you can jump on a I was, horse. I was definitely not a cowboy, but I had many close friends that are cowboys and still do, you know, but I, you know, I was around it enough. I was more of a city boy. They, if they heard I was a cowboy, they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, to them, to them, you were like, to, to them, you were like from Los Angeles because you like lived in a town, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. That's right. You were, you were corrupted. And it's, a, and it's a blend, you know, like, so in high school, our basketball team was about half country boys and half city boys, you know? And, uh, and, you know, good friends and, you know, went, go out to their ranches and hang out, you know, they'd come into town and hang out. Well, and some of these ranches are just got, have got to be so gorgeous. I mean, right. The land has got oh, to yeah. be spectacular. Totally. Like if you went to, uh, Randy Petrich, he was our two guard, excellent shooter. And one of the hilarious things about him, I mean, he could shoot it lights out, could not dribble. Cause out on his ranch, he built a basketball court, but the ground was just, you know, rock and bumpy grass and stuff. So. He didn't get to dribble much out there. <laughs> so, but he could, he could, he could, he, he had a jump like a shot. Yeah, so he could hit the jumper big time, you know. And he also, you know, a lot. There's just so many interesting things. Like, you know, he was a good athlete. So he's like, I think I'll go out for track. Like his uh, junior, senior year. So he built a a pathway and a long jump pit on his ranch. So he's running down through the dirt and practicing long jump into a pit that he puts hand in. You know? One of the benefits and, and of he, having that he, much space. And he, yeah, and he and he took second in state or something. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable! So you could hop on a, you could hop on a horse. If I put a horse in front of you, you could hop on it and like take off at a full gallop. Uh, I wouldn't trust myself there. I would need a few lessons for sure. You know, you would. Okay, but, yeah, that yeah, makes I me would. feel better. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not straight ranch. I've definitely been around ranches, but I don't. You know, it's more it's more like a lot of friends, a lot of family. You know, and uh, they would see me uh, around the uh, ranch as a greenhorn for sure. You know. Well, what about I mean, what I'd, about like wild? Doing the work, but, yeah. What about like wildlife? Are you talking like? I mean, obviously, there's the antelope and there's the deer, and 
you know, that kind of stuff. But what about bears and mountain lions and any sightings or yeah. interactions with that, those kinds of animals like predators? Yeah, you see, I mean, I've seen a lot of bears for sure, you know, um, but you know, those, I mean, it's always, you're always very, very careful around any, any big game really, you know, even, even a moose or something, you know, you're trying to keep your keep trees between you and the moose and, you know, you're not, uh, they're big, huge animals, you know, and so, what? so a bear especially is, you know, everybody would want to make sure they stay away, you know, so even if you saw it in the distance, you wouldn't be going toward it or anything. You'd be trying to make sure you're in your car or make sure you got a safe place or, you know. Yeah, make sure, and, make uh, sure you're in your car with the doors locked driving. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, but my dad is, you know, I mean, he would be, I mean, he, he's basically like a contemporary or modern day mountain man for sure. Like, He's been all over, and I've, you know, my brother and I went a lot of places with him. But, you know, you come into our house. You know, we used we grew up in uh, three different trailers. You know, one mobile home and a couple different trailers. And uh, and you know, he would have these big heads already, like an elk or a stone sheep or a doll sheep, in these trailers. You know, so you walk in the trailer, and that thing would take up, you know, like half the half the space of that trailer. You know, and uh, so now they got a nice house and. You come into the to the great room of their house, and right above you is a is a bear, just you know, head sticking out of the wall. <laughs> and then to the to the right is a couple of couple of mountain goats, and and then you come around you know, come around to the left, and you got a caribou, um, two antelope, uh, huge elk. Uh, just really the heads, nice, just uh, the heads, really, right? Yeah, just the heads. Really okay. nice white tail, really nice uh, mule deer, and and then down on the ground a full full spread um, mountain lion. You know, just on the floor. That your dad and, uh, shot. Right, all those are ones that he got. Yeah. Wow. So now, but there, let me ask you this. This is a question because this is uh, sort of tying it into something literary. Is that with uh, in the house you have these things placed? You know, however they're placed from a decorative standpoint. Are there any yeah. mounted on the wall in the dining room? <laughs> That's awesome. My mom gets the dining room, and my mom gets her reading room, and and the and their bedroom. <laughs> so there. Okay. I'm sure there's been. I'm sure my dad's had forays of saying, "I think we should put this, uh, you know, this uh, moose head over in the kitchen," and she's saying, "No." <laughs> no. Well, this is the thing: is that I, I uh, the reason I ask is because Hemingway's house in uh, San Francisco de Paula, outside yes. of Havana, um, <laughs> you know, uh, God, what is it called? I'm forgetting. My brain is so bad, but. Anyway, you know, he obviously lived outside of Havana for, uh, I think, the greatest part of his life. And yeah. in his dining room in that house, or all around the table, the entire dining room table was surrounded by busts of animals that he had shot. And I'm like, yeah. you know, to each their own. But, I mean, when you're eating a meal and there's a, <laughs> exactly. animals are looking down at you with these, like, forlorn you're gazes. Not, you, you definitely get used to it and don't – I mean, we don't even think about it, you know, because we're often eating in the in the room with all the heads, like pizza or whatever, you know. Like, you, don't, you don't even think about it. You know? Yeah, so you, so you, like, set a drink on it. You, like, set a drink on the mountain lion. You're not – you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> you do – actually, the mountain lion, you can't protect it because the furs are beautiful. You try to not put anything too much sure. on it. So what's the story with the mountain? So what's the story with the mountain lion? Like, your dad's out in the, in the what you know, the backcountry? Mountain lions are, you know, actually more and more plentiful in Montana right now, you know, and so, you know, the fishing game has opened up more tags so that people can go, you know, hunting for mountain lions more in the last number of years. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a complex uh, calculation that they go through of, you know, how many how many deer tags should we let out, you know, because if the deer population gets too big, then it hurts other populations, and, the, you know, the mountain lion population gets too big, you know, et cetera, so... So they're trying, you know, fishing game has their ways of trying to work with that. But so it's a little different than all, than most other hunting in that, 
in Montana, because most hunting in Montana, you know, whether it's birds or, or deer or elk or, you know, whatever you're going for, you're usually just going out into the wilderness somewhere, spotting animals and uh, trying to get into a good position so that you have a good shot that's not too far, right? And uh, so that you can, you know, take the animal in a good good way, basically. But with uh, mountain lions, it's all dogs. So someone uh, is hired that has a set of dogs that track mountain lions. I was going to say, because you're never going to, I mean, no human being is going to be able to track one of those things. I, I, I lived in Colorado for years and years, and that was always sort of my, like, hope and fear was to see one. Yeah. Exactly, uh, I, I always like had like I always like knew where my keys were in my pocket because I was like if one of these things you know comes out of the bushes and grabs me I'm gonna gouge its eyes out or whatever. <laughs> it's good to have a plan. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they tell you that you know like you can they tell you to fight back you know so I'm like how do I yeah, fight it's, back? Uh, it's probably like with bears and it's so rare with bears or mountain lions that anybody really escapes. But it's, uh, <laughs> like well, that's have, right. You know, no, I mean there's a there was a guy out here yeah. in Southern California who uh, he was riding his mountain bike. Yeah. And, you know, they track movement and this guy was just cruising yeah. along on his mountain bike. And, and you, the, the other thing about mountain lions is that you, you don't even see them, especially when they attack. Oh, it's kind of no. like sharks. Yeah. You have no idea. They're totally elusive. Yeah, totally elusive. Yeah. They're uh, rarely seen, you know, in Montana, they're rarely seen. So, you know, even so the dogs, the dogs, you know, track them and tree them. And then generally it's bow hunting. So you're shooting them with a bow. But I mean, there, there is, I think there's a gun season too, but my dad uses, has been, he's used a bow. So the dogs tree the cat, and then you shoot them with a bow. Cat's way up there in the tree, and yeah, shoot it with a bow. Yeah. Wow, wow. So now, uh, Sasquatch. Any, <laughs> th- any, <laughs> any thoughts on Sasquatch? Is he there? Montana Montana doesn't have much of a history with Sasquatch. I know, but it's just that. Mostly just Seattle, not us. Yeah, so you never really hear anything like that. You hear, you hear more just kind of crazy stories of men that are kind of half mountain men, you know, kind of like my dad, like they... Uh, one of the, I think in one of the stories I mentioned this, uh, you know, the dad in that story, which is exactly from my dad's life, where it's, you know, he, he goes up hunting, uh, um, I think he was hunting bighorn sheep at that point, which are always high mountain, you know, areas. It's in the, it's in the winter. Um, it's very cold. You, you have to spot, you know, people in that case will spot, try to spot, spot them for two or three weeks to try to find where, a, you know, maybe where a small herd is, right? Uh, sometimes you're up there for two or three weeks and don't see anything. Don't see any, you know. So he's up there two weeks, three weeks. Uh, it, this huge blizzard sets in. He comes down. I'm, I'm like, good to see you. you know, like I'm, I'm thinking, you know, he's just gonna stay home, right? And all he did was just get a warmer sleeping bag. And God, <laughs> they're made of stern. They're made of sterner stuff up there. Yeah, it's quite a. I'm like, wow. Don't you want to just hang out? He's like, no. I gotta get. I gotta go. I gotta get this. <laughs> Wow. So now, uh, childhood-wise, like uh, you know, we touched on this in the in the TNB book club uh, meeting. But you know, your family went through some rough times when you were younger, and you know, things sort of turned around. Like, yeah, there's like an interesting religious. Uh, I don't want to say conversion. I, that might over dramatize it, but it definitely played a role in your life in a really positive definitely. way. Yeah, very big for us. Um, you know, I think the my dad grew up in Circle, Montana. That's population 300 that's out on the high plains you know my mom's small town was out there too and uh you know it's basically like a two you know two lane highway running through there with dirt streets coming off of it and that's where you know kind of where the housing is and uh and he grew up in that atmosphere and his family didn't have a lot and i think that influenced him you know in, in the beginning he, he just hated school right then he gets 
he gets uh, to senior year, and the way he relays it is they uh, they advanced him and gave him his high school degree because uh, they they said you you know you sh- we're get- we should flunk you, but we don't want to deal with you for another year. <laughs> right, so, just get him through. Into life. Right. So he's out into life. He's five eight at that time. You know, he loves basketball. But he's pretty small. Just goes and works roads in Montana's building roads. You know, throughout Montana. But he grows that next year and goes all the way to six four. Whoa! And uh, and so what? Age eighteen, like eighteen years old, and he shoots up from five eight. Maybe nineteen, maybe nineteen. Yeah, right at that time. Yeah. Why didn't that happen to me? I know. I would like that too. I'd like another five inch. (laughs) So he gets up there, and you know he's playing city league basketball. Basketball's huge in Montana. I mean, kind of kind of like Indiana, just huge. Like my my state title games had eight thousand at one of them and ten thousand at the other one. You know, just huge. And uh, and our high school town of 10,000 people had 3,500, 4,000 people in the gym every game, passed sure. out completely. Passed. So so you know he's playing basketball and guys that are out there on the roads are like, you know, you should go to college, play in college, you know. And he's like, oh, I hated school. And they're like, oh, you probably like it a little better now. You want to work like this all your life. So he goes back to college and here's how he got the scholarship: Mount City Community College, right? Out, again, out on the high plains. Walks into the gym, you know, walks back to the coach's office back there. And he says, uh, hey, I don't know, I'd like to play some basketball if I can for you. You guys got a scholarship? And the coach looks up and sees that he's 6'4 and goes, doesn't know him really from anybody. He goes, yep, I got a scholarship for you. That was it. <laughs> that was it. So, <laughs> so when he's in. So anyway, so the family, and he loved basketball. And he, you know, he then went on to play at Rocky Mountain College, which is in Billings. And, uh, you know, had a nice career and, and became a teacher. And that kind of switched around the poverty cycle a bit. But probably not uh, just uh, getting into bar fights and being out there, living a little more wild, you know. And, and that eventually kind of crushed our family, all of that lifestyle. You know? Sure. And and then by that time, he's coaching at Plenty Coup, which is a, on the Crow Reservation. And he's got nice teams going, great players. Some of those mentioned in the in the uh, uh, book of short stories, like Marty Roundface and Tim Falls Down and Dana Goes Ahead. And, I mean, these, and, these, are the, uh, these are the kids' names that you grew up playing with and against. Well, they were more my heroes. They, I was young. Those right. Guys. The ones that the ones that I played with and against, which I also put in there, are people like uh, Russell Tall, White Man, and, and uh, <laughs> that's the best yeah. basketball name ever. That, well, no, there's some better ones. I, I personally like Jonathan Cakes Enemy. Think about that. Man. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty fun. And then how about Kills Night? That's an amazing name. You know. Yeah. But there's tons of tons of great names. You know. But, so in any case, those guys, Jonathan and Joe Pretty Paint. Uh, you know, those guys were the ones I played with. And then they, the other ones I mentioned are the ones that were like my heroes when I was young, just watching them and my dad coaching them. And uh, so so that, so that's kind of where it was at, and that's kind of where the family finally fell apart. And, and that's when, you know, we came into a different perspective around the idea of faith or the idea of some type of unity that came out of faith, you know. Well, was this, was it like rooted in like, I mean, I know like in recovery, uh, like I mean, did your, did your dad go through like a traditional recovery type program? He was still out there just kind of lost to us, you know? Oh, okay. And my mom, you know, she had a close friend and, and, you know, I think that friendship kind of just brought her into a church basically, you know, then, then my brother and I, and then, so it's kind of my mom and my brother and I, and personally, I felt like there's a lot of peace in that environment, like people were kind and it was a totally different environment, you know. Compared to what you were used to. Right. And they they were just kinda happy to see you and there was a lot of you know, just adult women and men would just often go out of their way and just, Hey, how you doing? you know, put their sure. put their hand on your shoulder, you know. 
so I, I felt a lot of connection to those people. And the music was, I loved, I always loved music, and there was tons of music, you know, in the church. So that, that, all of that was really helpful to me. And then about a, uh, about a year later, my dad, uh, you know, was still kind of out there lost, right? To us, anyway. And I think he just, you know, the way he talks about it now is he just felt like, you know, basically he felt like he missed his sons. I don't, I don't think he was ready to kind of really work totally on, on marriage or life necessarily. But he felt like, you know, I, I do want to be a dad, you know. And and I think that had a lot to do with, you know, just his interior, you know. So he eventually, like, you know, he was also like me, like most of the men in my family were, we tend to be pretty stubborn, you know. So he could have drove to work at a different route, but he just kept the same route, which always went right by the church that we were going to. <laughs> huh. No accident. I think that, yeah, I think that kind of worked on him over time, right? You know, like, you know, he, he because I can imagine he wouldn't be like, well, I'm going to take a different route. He'd be like, I'm going the same route. I don't care if I'm driving by that. <laughs> so, you know. so in any case, he uh, eventually just on a Friday night when normally there's nobody there, he, church totally dark, he went in and. There was, uh, you know, the pastor that that was there, uh, his name was Pastor McFadden, really nice. I liked him a lot. You know, he happened to be back in there, kind of probably working on his sermon or something. So here's my dad coming in, you know, and my dad's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And it was basically conversion, right? The guy, the guy goes, I know why you're here. Yeah, right. Been waiting for right it. At, right, exactly. And kind of right at that point, my dad switched his whole lifestyle, you know, which I think was uh, difficult in some ways because there was no more outlets. So I think... Personally, I think he had more anger for a while, you know, because you know outlet, really, you know what I mean? Like, not going out on Fridays and Saturdays or, you know. you got to sit uh, with it. you got to just kind of sit with it and transform yeah. it. Yeah, and, and he, he's bold, so he put, you know, a big old uh, cross necklace around his neck, you know. so he Made of, like made of mountain lion bones. It was... Exactly. It's like that <laughs> changed all the... Fr- it was made out of, like, hard metal, like you get out of a scrapyard or something. Sure. <laughs> It was big, you know, like it, it wasn't like a little one or something. So I think that all of that was not, was probably not too easy, you know, for him, but I was thankful that he made that move, you know. I mean, there was plenty, plenty of difficulty still in the family just because we've got our faults, right? But but there was some new light and some new life, and then we, we were also together, and there was a lot of unity around basketball and a lot of, you know, kind of moving together again. And that was the point where we moved to the Norman Cheyenne Reservation, and, uh, you know, my brother was coming into high school then, and Crowell was a huge athlete, 45-inch vertical, and, you know, things That's your brother's name? Yeah, Crowell, K-R-A-L. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so everything kind of started... Wait, he's a white guy with a 45-inch vertical? 45-inch vertical. Worked for two years on an old-school machine called the Leaper Machine, which they eventually uh, recalled because it would give people back problems and stuff. He, He never got any problems out of it, but... He did that and squats twice a day for a couple of years, and by the time he was junior in high school, he was just flying. You know. So wait, so are we are we talking like running, like running at full sprint and leaping in the air, and he's he's four feet off the ground? Or are we talking like standing flat-footed jumps four feet up, uh, like one running step? With, running, running, you know, as full on would be the forty-five inches, but he had plenty just standing and jumping too. You know? Christ. And so, yeah, and and my dad was really a maverick, very maverick coach. So he built. A jump training program for our team, and Crowell was one of the first to go through it. And my team, I'm two years behind Crowell, my team was the first to go through it for, for all four years. And it was based on the Cuban national volleyball team, plyometrics, depth jumping boxes, you know. And so here we are, small town Montana, 
you know, 10,000 people my senior year, we have, of our team of 12 varsity players, we have eight guys that can dunk and five guys can do reverses, can dunk behind the head. <laughs> so my dad just, like, built this, you know, factory of jumping machines, you know. And Crowell, you know, he, he you know, did great in track. I think he I think he had more points than the second-place team in track when we won the state track title <laughs> just by himself. Like, he won, like, three or four events and got second at another one or something. Like the high jump and the long jump? Yeah, and... high jump, triple jump, long jump. Uh, and then he did high hurdles, and I think he came in on, like, the mile relay because somebody got injured. How tall was he? He was 6'4". Okay, and how tall, and that, how tall are you? I'm six one. Six yeah, one. Mine, mine at the top was probably forty two or forty three inches. You know? Good and God! So that, his was huge. So, and then neat thing about him too, he had a great college career, and we played together at Montana State before I transferred to Pepperdine. But then he went on and made the national volleyball team. So he had a you know a lot of great times in volleyball too. This is like a super athlete. Now, was your your dad was obviously it comes from your dad's side. This athleticism is your mom an athlete. Uh, she likes sports, you know, but I don't think she really ever got into it fully. So it's, yeah, dad was always the one that was, she loved being at the events, and, but he was the one. I and mean, he's still playing basketball. He's 70 now, and he's he's at a tournament, a, nas- a, a world master's tournament in Brazil right now playing basketball. So he still loves it. Your brother is? No, my dad at age 70. He's playing in Brazil? Right, in a in a world master's. Master's is, you know, the older the veterans, the want like 35 and older, 40 and older, 50 and older, 60 and older. So he, he's at this tournament in Brazil that had, I think it had 12 teams of 70-year-olds. And what does he look like on the court at age 70? I mean, he can still move, obviously. He looks great compared to the rest of the 70-year-olds. He's, he's been the MVP of the World world Games a few times. You know? And uh, his, but, you know, I mean, he's slow you know, compared to like 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds. But I'm, you know, I'm 43 and I'm slow compared to 20-year-olds. So, yeah, he looks great. We can still play. We still play in tournaments together, him and I and my brother. Wow. So, wait, now you said you moved to the Cheyenne Reservation. Uh, What prompted that? I mean, you moved onto the reservation itself. Was it just a job? Your dad was coaching, or was it? All all the moves were based on the coaching career, basically, you know. So, he also also got a, you know, sort of principal certification, so he became a principal also, but... He didn't, we didn't move places to go be a principal. It was always a the job, the coaching job, and then also a teaching job with it or a principal job with it, you know. And uh, so that's why you know it's just another one of the moves. It was basically one one uh, level up. So he was coaching in Class C in Montana, and in Montana you have Class C, Class B, Class A, and Double A. So that move was to a Class B school at the, at the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Well, wow. so what was it like to live on the Cheyenne Reservation? Whether well, you're in high school, you know that's an atypical yeah. high school experience. Yeah, it was pretty. It ended up marvelous, you know. In the beginning, though, I had a lot of fear, you know. Like you, I mean, that's probably like most situations where if a person's a complete minority, you know. Were you the you only? Know, I mean, were you the only white guy on the reservation, kind of thing, or were there my other? Brother and I, my brother and I, and one other white guy in the school. And that was it. That was it. Yeah, and the other guy was. Kind of a bit, uh, a bit more drug oriented. Crown and I are more sports oriented, you know. Well, I was so, going to say, I was going to say, like, what's what's senior prom like? You know, like what's what happens there on these reservations? <laughs> yeah. So peyote uh, ceremonies, or yeah, it's like it's just reservations are fun, to, in my opinion. Meaning people have a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor, but there's tons of desolation. You know, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. suicides and a lot of alcohol, and and uh, you know, so I mean, I think Crown and I both feel like our friends were marvelous great great people to be with and like i'm this this summer i'm going back to the north cheyenne reservation to do a two-day basketball clinic with my best friend from the cheyenne reservation 
you know, there's, I mean, friends definitely can last and are really powerful friends there, you know. So I think overall is great, but it is different, you know. I mean, you'll see, when I saw a number of, uh, you know, fights between girls, you know, like nasty, nasty fights, you know. Like fist fights. <laughs> as, well like, as, like... as well as, yeah. I mean, it's like kicking and scratching, hair pulling, punching, you know. I mean, with with a huge crowd gathered around. Usually it's like, you know, I mean, it happens a lot with nobody really around to stop it, you know. You just get into it. And so <laughs> so I spent a lot of my time avoiding fights. Basketball helped me a lot, you know. Yeah, no, so, that was uh, def- definitely like a nice way to like ingratiate yourself and, and kind of find uh, an identity. That was a huge card to have. I mean, that was big because we all loved, you know, reservations that are, they love basketball. It's better at in the uh, reservations as far as love for basketball than probably most of the other white towns. You know, tons of love for basketball. So. Well, so what about what about like the actual school itself? I mean, like, I'm trying to get a picture of this. Like, we, we, yeah. we the building, the the hallways, like culturally, how westernized pretty, was it? I mean, totally westernized. Though, yeah. You know, you'd have you know, it was basically sponsored by uh, it was a Catholic school, so it's sponsored by I'm not sure which order it was or anything. But, you know, so it's you know it's just a nice building sitting kind of in the middle of the reservation, uh, or on the edge of it actually, and uh, and that building's you know it's plenty nice. The gym was nice. Um, there was dorms there too for so that families that wanted uh, to come from the Crow Reservation, which is a neighboring reservation to the Northern Shand Reservation, they'd be, they'd be bused in and stay there for a week. You know, the the, the Crow Indians with, um, and the Cheyennes just you know come from the nearby towns. And, so yeah, the building pretty western. They they would have like uh, some cultural experiences and and one class that was based on you know kind of based on Cheyenne culture. That was always fun, you know, all kinds of cool old school games from you know like spear throwing and things called hand games, which are like kind of small gambling games and, nice. and all kinds of good food. All kinds <laughs> of good food like tons of fry bread, and, um, choke cherry patties. You know, and just what's a choke cherry food. patty? What does that mean? Like choke cherries are kind of really tart fruit that. You know, on the on the trees around the area, truck cherry trees, and uh, and they you, you basically kind of grind it, mulch it up, and then let it dry in patties, and it's like uh, you know, it's kind of like eating a, a sweet uh, dry biscuit of truck cherries. <laughs> so you're in you're in high school. You're the best player on the team. Uh, well, you know, I mean, eventually, but my brother was kind of the one that led the way, you know, and then once he graduated and, and by then, so Crowell was, Crowell was there, uh, for, you know, we were there together, but then we moved to Livingston for Crowell's junior, senior year and my freshman and sophomore year. And Livingston's basically an all white town, you know, in the mountains. And, uh, so the team I was on, I was, um, I don't know if I was the best player. I would say there was probably three of us that were solid, excellent players, you know, and then I would say Crowell was the best player on, on the teams he was on, you know, and then once Crowell advanced, I was tiny too, I kind of grew late, a little bit like my dad, like I was 5'2 as a freshman in high school. Oh, wow. I weighed, 90, weighed 95 pounds. Huh. Yeah, and then my sophomore year though, I was 5'10, so I grew 8 inches over that summer. Okay. And by the time I was a senior, I was 6'1". And you, would you play point guard? Yeah, point or two, either one, but mostly point in high school. In college, I went back and forth. I played two my freshman year, then point, then my sophomore, two my junior year, point my senior year. So 
kind of just another way of like marketing yourself basically at that level that if you can do both you know that's helpful sure of course so you so you graduate high school uh from the high what was the name of the high school on the reservation was it just well the, the on the reservation it was saint Lebray, but i graduated from park high school the the in livingston Oh, okay. Park because it's, because it's next to Yellowstone National Park. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So you graduate, and then you went, You said you went to Montana State first? Right. Two years at Montana State. My brother and I played together. Had nice years there. We went to the NCAA tournament our freshman year, and then to NIT our, our, uh, my sophomore year. Then he graduated. Then I transferred to Pepperdine University and uh, played my last two there. We had good teams there, too. Why did you transfer to Pepperdine? You know, I mean, I think there's a number of factors, but... Um, Mainly, I was having some difficulties with the coach at Montana State. Um, you know, at one level, I could say, well, maybe some of that was his fault, but I know, knowing myself and my own defensiveness and stubbornness, but I'm sure I was plenty of, plenty to blame. <laughs> well, sure. You were also what? You were also 19 years old. Yeah. So, so you know, there was a, you know, I just felt like it was, it, I needed to go based on the relationship that I had with him that wasn't working very well. And, uh, and then I just, you know, looked at the places, some of the places I'd been recruited by before, and then a few new places, and it was a good option. They all, I think I had, I had offers from everybody that I looked at, except for maybe two of them. And uh, and then I went to Pepperdine because that was uh, Jim Herrick was the coach there. He had recruited me out of high school, and I I loved him a lot out of high school too. And so it was good. And he didn't he go on to coach UCLA? He did, which was also a little sad for me because that was you know he I was with him my retro year, and then he went to UCLA. Oh, and then he went to <laughs> okay. So now wait, so you're you know you're this this. A kid from the mountains up in Montana, and then suddenly you're in Malibu. What was that transition like? I was finally ready. Like when I when I visited Pepperdine, as a, you know, coming out of high school, because you get you get five official visits when you're getting recruited, and Pepperdine was one of them. And I also visited Cal Berkeley and San Diego, and you know, I was wanting some sunshine. You know, <laughs> of course, really that's what my so wife went there. That's but, why she went. She's from Minnesota. She had to. Oh, she yeah. needed sun. It was perfect, but but at I was actually I was 17 as a freshman in college, so coming out like directly there on the recruiting visit is too much for me. I think you know, yeah. Like I think I was just a little freaked out, but then after you know after being in college a couple of years, then it was just great. Just I loved the idea, and then I got I loved it being there. So so did you hang in Malibu most of the time, or were you like in L.A. cruising around and most, doing most of the time in Malibu? Though some in L.A. We had some. We had a lot of cool kind of social justice efforts going on, like uh, serving the homeless, actually, in Santa Monica and in L.A. So we have a few groups going into the city, you know, a couple times a week and uh, just kicking it with homeless people. And There's plenty of those around life. here. Yeah, and talking about life and doing, uh, you know, just go get, like, they have, like, 33% 33 burritos at Dr. Bell. We go buy, like, 30 of them and just go kick it, you know. Sure, sure. No, I, just, I was just driving downtown the other night, and I went past the uh, the Midnight Mission downtown. Yeah, in there, yeah. I, I, I think anybody who comes to Los Angeles should go drive downtown onto Skid Row, like, after dark. It's like, you just do not realize. It's like 10,000 people live down there on the street. It's it's unreal. Right. And you can't even, I mean, a lot of those places, you're just not leaving walking room on the sidewalks. It's just people. No, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, you know, it, it's something to yeah. see. It's it's hard to believe, yeah. you know. But I guess, like... Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say the joke. I guess in my own mind is that uh, I guess the reason there's so many of them is because the the climate is so hospitable. I mean, if you have to be homeless somewhere, uh, I guess being in Los Angeles is, is kind of. I'd a, rather be I'd rather be homeless in Los Angeles than in Montana. Yeah, I'd rather the, yeah, but better to be here than to be up like you know, uh, I don't know, in the wild country with but, the the bears. 
and then you the other thing is uh it's just a couple blocks away from like the center of LA from the center of industry you know yeah no it's 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 bizarre well, it's hard it's yeah. it's hard to even conceptualize and then uh yeah. the the idea of what to do about it and and I think homelessness generally I mean this is a whole other uh onion to peel but I mean it's it's really one of those things where you you know you look at it and you can acknowledge it and you can say this is so this is so messed up and then you start to think about the people who uh, take on the responsibility of trying to figure it out and how to solve right. it. Yeah. And yeah. that's just like, that's overwhelming to me. My brain just starts to smoke at that point. You know? I, admi- I just admire those people that put in the, cause it's, you know, that's a, that's a very, uh, uh, burnout oriented, uh, line of work. And there's gotta be a lot of turnover like, at the midnight great. mission. That's all I got to say. Yeah. yeah. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, so you're at Pepperdine. Give me like, you know, one, peak experience as a college basketball player like what was the best game you played in yeah that's a that's a good question I had a lot of good times in college basketball and probably uh at pepper at, at montana state it would be i'll do two of them at montana state it would be we were the last place team in the league and our point guard from portland uh, tony hampton excellent excellent you know quick black point guard with great skills um brought us together and said we need to, you know, we're getting degraded consistently <laughs> from the coaching staff. We need to band together, and anytime you see something go wrong or right, you need to uh, give courage to the other person, slap them on the back, give them a high five, say you're doing great, let's keep it going, you know. And we need to go right now, you know. So here we are, the last place in the, in the league. You gather us together in, the, in this game against Loyola Marymount, who's ranked in the top 20, who we should just get destroyed by. And uh, we end up winning that game, and we go on a on a seven game win streak, and win win through our tournament as the last place team, and go to the NCAAs. Wow! And so that 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 whole like trek was amazing and a lot of joy. And then at Pepperdine, um, so then I moved to uh, you know I was in the WCC then the West Coast Conference, and that actually Loyola Marymount is in that conference, and that's when they had Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. I was going to say uh, those those are their glory years. Great teams, yeah, great teams. And so, you know, both years we split with them. They were a good team and stronger than us in general, I think, but we were we were close and right there all the time. So my senior year, you know, they beat us at their place. They come to our place right before the, our, you know, the end of the season tournament. And, uh, you know, remember they were high-octane high fast break. And that game at Pepperdine was 127 to 114 we won. Wow. So that, that was a great experience. And then just the tragedy of, you know, Hank Gathers' death was the next weekend at that tournament right, right before we're slated to play against each other in a, in a championship game. We're both in the semis, and, uh, they you know, it was in the semi game that he uh, it actually completed an alley-oop dunk, was running, you know, running back towards half court and setting up their press and just fell over and died. God, yeah, I remember that. And I remember then Bo Kimball shooting all of his free throws left-handed in the tournament. Yeah. And they uh, went to the the Elite Eight, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. So what year was that? Was that late 80s? That was 90. 90, okay, yeah. 89, 90 that season right there. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like, that's unbelievable. And, you know, to to kind of try to rope it back into, uh, you know, literary pursuits, you know, yeah. one thing that strikes me is the, you know, the fact that you uh, were a really accomplished athlete. And, you know, this doesn't get talked about a lot, and I think a lot of the reason is because most uh, literary writers do not have a background as an accomplished athlete. Uh, right. But there are some, you know, and I, I like David Foster yeah. Wallace pops to mind. Like, he was a really great tennis player. 
Um, yeah. I'm trying to like kind of search my brain for others, but like, you, Wyden, know, Wyden, you remember, uh, you remember Wyden and his daughters in the WNBL, I think. You know? Who's this? And, uh, is it, uh, Wyden, the one, uh, the famous African-American, African-American writer, uh, he wrote something like the soul is deep, that big anthology. And he's got a bunch of great books and great short stories. Is okay. it John Edgar Wyden? Oh man, that might be it. You know what? I, I don't. Right. Okay. So I think he and I think he was a college basketball player, and then uh, C.K. Williams, a poet, played for Marquette, which is interesting. Oh yeah, and then yeah, I mean, so like there is some of that, and I'm curious to know like what you learned as an athlete that like sort of translated. I mean, the, the athlete's discipline. Yeah. Kerouac was a good athlete. He was a college football player oh, yeah, yeah. for yeah. however long he was at Columbia. But I remember reading something about him, and it was like talking about how he viewed the discipline that you need as a writer uh, in much the same way that he approached sports or, or I guess maybe, uh, you know, sports informed the way that he approached writing. And he would, you know, he would go through these, obviously these marathon sessions at the typewriter and yeah. it was like an athletic feat. And yeah. one of the things that I, I think I, I've actually said this before, uh, you know, in classes that I've been teaching creative writing classes is that, you know, writing really is a physical act. And if you sit and you work in a really concentrated way for any extended period of time, it's exhausting. Yeah, uh, totally. like, like, like full body, it's not meant, it's, it's mentally exhausting, sure, but it's like full body exhaustion, at least for me it is. Oh, yeah. um, no, I agree. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, like as, as an athlete, like how did you, you know, what did that do for your writing? How, how has it informed it? Well, I think, I think there's a gift from my brother and my dad who are both major hard workers and I was tiny and I really had a, a large dream to play Division One basketball and try to be a, you know, a great player. But I was so small, you know, that I felt I made a deal with myself. I'm going to do whatever it takes uh, from my end to get to that level. And uh, so, so it's not so so that I'm not the one that blocks it. You know what I mean? So that for me, I, I just did so many hours. I played eight eight hours a day uh, my, before my junior summer and ten hours a day before my senior summer. Played 17 hours one day. You know. So there's all this time put into the details and the specifics of being a point guard and being a shooting guard. You know. So wait a minute. Let me stop like, you there. Let me stop you there. You're saying like the summer before your senior year in high school, yeah. You're playing eight hours a day minimally. Yeah. By yourself? I mean, you're just out there on the court, like shooting, or you're you're scrimmaging. Right. Or? I'm down there on the court, and because our town was gathering, you know, more basketball power, there would probably be, I'd say, three and a half hours a day that people would be there. You know, people, we'd have games at night, you know, most every night. And then, every, you know, my friends would sometimes come by and we'd play some one-on-one for an hour. Or, you know, but I was just basically there by myself, you know. And I also had a young guy that loved to be with me, so there was, a, there was like a fifth grader that hung out and shot a lot, too, you know. He was like your and, rebounder. Yeah, right, true, and, and just nice to have some companionship, you know. And uh, so, yeah, it was a lot of just isolated hours of trying to get to the next level and trying to get your skills to the right place. Are, are you like, I'm, I'm having this picture of you. It's sort of like Rocky where like you're up before the sun and you've got like the hooded sweatshirt on and you're like running through the mountains. Is this happening? That's what it's like. Get get out of my trailer at about seven thirty in the morning with my bike, had a little pocket coat, you know, like a vinyl coat that had like a little pocket in the front that I put my transistor radio in and it had a drawstring that coat did and I had my basketball up under that, tie the drawstring. You know, so you can't look like you're pregnant driving down the road. But or <laughs> you know, take my bike in into the town, down to the court, um, put the little transistor radio up, play for eight hours straight, and you know, just try to get better. You know, basically, stop for lunch, have a little lunch with me. You know? See, I didn't have, I did not have that discipline. 
I did not have any, <laughs> anything like that. That's unbelievable. It was a, it, and it's frustrating a lot. Like the first month of each summer, you kind of feel like, why am I doing this? This is awful. You know, but then, you know, then, then the body would break into it. Kind of like writing, you know, I mean, if you, if people have a pattern, so that's, that's helped me a lot in writing too. Is I, I kind of always knew, well, I want to have a pattern. So I have three girls, so it's not necessarily easy to get a pattern, but I just made my pattern, you know, 10 to one at night or 10 to two at night, you know, and it's still, that's still my pattern over these last, you know, 10, 12 years. And that's, that's the space. So, um, and it's good. It's like a quiet, reflective time, a good space to, to do the writing. And if I need to, if, I, if it's, if it's, you know, something needs to be taken farther than it, then you can go deeper into the night if you need to, you know, try not too much. Cause I'm awful to live with if I stay up past one or two every night. So, <laughs> so try to try to cut off at that time. So that, that's one thing that I think the discipline help, has helped a lot. But secondly, basketball has all kinds of artistic nuance to it. And a lot of interplay between uh, power and grace, you know, well, sure. And and I and I really love that about writing too. Is how do you how do you establish uh, an evocative interplay between power and grace, whether it's in characters or in landscape or in the in the shape of a story? And you know, the, how what's the role of narrative? What's the role of lyricism? You know, all of that I think for me also comes from you know the, basically that point guard two guard position has a lot of uh, that ethos in it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating to me because there, there are innumerable cases where an author's uh, vocation or day job or whatever, night job or whatever it may be, uh, or passion, whether, you know, if it's a sport or something like that, it winds up informing their art, you know, and, and I think sometimes there's like this resistance to doing anything but the writing and that everything else right. sort of sucks by comparison. But yeah, a lot of, exactly. a lot of times the writing is shaped and wouldn't be the same without it. You know, you need it in I, a way. I agree. And I think I, I think I would be, I've thought about it, like, would I rather have a job that I'm, you know, making sure I'm, you know, like, I, let's say I have six, five or six hours of writing per day and that's my job, you know, and, uh, but, you know, all these other elements, working with families as a psychologist is probably core, is probably, like, primary for me. You know? Well, let me, yeah, and, let's get there, because, like, this is it, we were just, we were just scratching the surface. In addition to being uh, an award-winning uh, author and being, like, a, you know, Division One basketball player. You're also a professor of leadership studies um, at Gonzaga. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. yeah and so you have your doctorate, and in, in, you got your doctorate in leadership studies. My doctorate's in psychology. Oh, in psychology. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and but leadership studies is an interdisciplinary field. So you know, my our core factor. There's five of, five of us. We have a psychologist, myself, an anthropologist, uh, statistician. Um, and a person with an education background and a person with a business background. So it's pretty, it's just interdisciplinary and focusing on leadership. So what do you do with that? I mean, you teach? Yeah. You mean if somebody gets a PhD in leadership? Oh yeah. I mean, like what do you do on it? Yeah. I mean, for the, like, if you're, if you're at Gonzaga, you're obviously teaching some courses, oh, but yeah. then you also. My, yeah, so, yeah. So for my job at Gonzaga, you know, all and the professors at Gonzaga in general, your job is to teach three courses per term in whatever field you're in, you know, um, sometimes more, sometimes less, but generally about three courses per term. So since I'm teaching in a doctoral program, I, you know, we, we all teach two courses per term, and then we have a, a load of uh, students that are in their dissertation research phase, and that counts as a class for us. So, was, you know, so that's, kind of, that's basically coaching people on their research and helping them go through you know, how to do their research. And uh, so that's what kind of the, the, the work life looks like. And then that program, you know, has its, it's basically looking at the interior of the person as a leader, 
the leader in organizational or group settings and a leader in global settings. So we, we also have partnerships all, all across the world, basically, with um, Afghanistan and uh, the Philippines and South Africa. And I just got back from Colombia. And, you know, just partnerships around leadership, uh, either in, you know, basic uh, business-type settings or across the disciplines or in social justice more. You know, my work's more in social justice-oriented settings because my research area is forgiveness. So that, you know, that you're just pursuing that work and, and developing it. Also, you're expected to, to be a writer of scholarly scientific work you know, as well. So that's another kind of branch of the writing. So so you're, you're, you studied psychology, you have your doctorate in it. You're a professor of leadership studies with, a, with an emphasis on forgiveness. Right. So you study forgiveness. Right. Yeah. What 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 have you learned? What do I need to know? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It, it, um, it's hard to encapsulate it all, but there's many uh, powerful movements of forgiveness around the world. A couple examples would be uh, at the site of the Big Hole massacre in northwest Montana, where the Nez Perce were massacred by U.S. Uh, cavalry. Uh, the Nez Perce hold a reconciliation ceremony each year, where the descendants of those who did the massacring, so the descendants of the cavalry and the descendants of those who were massacred, so Nez Perce descendants, they meet and uh, have a reconciliation, reconciliation ceremony. So that's an example of like a, a large, uh, you know, world-scale way of approaching uh, atrocities or approaching the wrongs that we do to each other. Well, no, like, so, I, I, wanna, I should jump in because like, uh, what this immediately made me think of is um, Rwanda and right. the, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm going to screw this up, but it was like the Hutus and the Tutsis, is that right? Yeah, the Hutus and, and the Tutsis, and like right. the, the unbelievable, and unbelievably quick, frankly, um, yeah. reconciliation that, like you know, at least has produced like a functional society in the aftermath of like just horror. And it's unbelievable exactly. how that worked. And, and in a way, very graceful or even lucky, fateful that uh, they were able to receive the influence of South Africa and Desmond Tutu and Mandela, who had gone through that with South Africa, right? Yeah, and so you know, if you didn't, if you don't have some of these things in play, right? If we don't have, if we don't have leaders like that, then we get continual trust, continual, you know, genocide. So, so then if you take it down into individual life, uh, I think most people, if one way of thinking about it, uh, theoretically or philosophically, and then and then making it more embodied or more physical in our lives would be that most people don't think about forgiveness very much, um, just because it's kind of you know maybe scary or. It's an issue that's easy to kind of push aside in, in a lot of ways. Um, and then if people do think about it, they usually think, well, maybe I need to forgive somebody. You know, maybe I need to forgive this person or that person. Maybe I need to get rid of my resentments, you know. Um, or, the, you know, this is a deep issue that maybe I need to work on some forgiveness. But when you get into the even more mature levels of forgiveness, which we might call ultimate forgiveness, uh, those people are looking at uh, asking forgiveness of others and changing behaviors, you know. Because if, if a person is a forgiveness asker, so if a person recognizes their faults well and asks forgiveness is able to change legitimately, then forgiving others is not as difficult. You know, it's, right. a natural out, it's a natural outpour, outpouring from there. So, you know, that's kind of one way of thinking about a more embodied look at forgiveness. Wow. So, like, if, yeah, so if, like, if somebody comes out to you and they say, Shan, uh, you know, my neighbor shot my dog. Something just awful. I mean, I'm just bringing this up. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and I want to forgive this person. Like, how do you do it? Like, what would be the pro? What would be the actual process? Like, what what do you do? You tell them, you know, you are forgiven, or? Well, it gets so complex. You can see immediately, like, what if that person has no remorse, and what if they, 
you know, what if they just happened to, they hated your dog and they felt like it kept them up each night. You know what I mean? So it's, so it's complex, so it's very relational. So when I'm working with families on major issues like, uh, you know, multiple infidelities or uh, someone in the family was murdered or, you know, just really difficult issues or uh, a death in the family or abuses of all forms, right? Um, it's long-term. You know, character change is about three to five years, research says. Uh, and then in-depth uh, generational family system healing, uh, they say, is about 10 to 15 years. So, wow. so there isn't, there isn't like an easy, quick answer. It's more, uh, all right, let's let's get down into this part of uh, mature life and 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 begin to discover what that might mean in my personal life towards others. You know. So. Wow, that's fascinating. So, do you feel like you're a good leader? I mean, obviously, if you've studied all this stuff, I mean, I would hope you're at least <laughs> decent. <laughs> a good question. I think uh, the answer would. For me, it would be, you know, other people that are near me and, you know, I think that's a better answer. What would they say? You know what I mean? Like, so hopefully my wife and my daughters feel uh, well-loved and, uh, you know, deeply respected and honored by who I am in their presence. And, you know, if not, then I'm not a good leader, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it because there's different, there's different, there's different views. And let's tie this back to basketball because this is a fascination yeah. for me. Is that like, especially in American culture, uh, and it's not just only, and it's not only applicable to sports, but uh, you know, just to use sports as one example. You know, if you're a winner in in our society, so yeah. many so many sins are forgiven. You can be a, yeah, t- sure. a tyrant. Yeah. So, like, if you wanted to hold up, and like, you know, in my mind, the two poles in college basketball. Yeah might be like on the one side you have John Wooden who's like the right. old, yep. the ultimate like exactly. one of one of my true heroes I think he's such a cool guy uh, and just yeah, like I mean, impossible not to like you know impossible anybody who says John Wooden uh, is an that's, asshole that, that's ridiculous you know yeah. it, it's absurd that's, uh, that, that person might get uh, trampled by yeah a <laughs> it's just he's universally liked I mean he's just such a sweetheart yeah. of a guy and the whole thing and a huge winner, yeah. huge success. And then yeah, on the yeah. other, on the other hand, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you have a guy like Bob Knight, who right. also a huge winner, won every, you know, at every level except the yeah. NBA. Basically, he was an Olympic right. gold medal, Pan Am Games, college basketball, three time champion, blah blah blah, yeah. most winningest yeah. coach in history, I think. He retired as, yeah. uh, but you know, notoriously uh, tyrannical in his dealings with players and with other right. people, and has like this volcanic temper. And, yeah. you know, but both could be said to be good leaders. So like when you said to your, you know, to the, to my last question that, you know, you'd have to ask other people and that, you know, you said it much more artfully than I'm probably going to do now, but you know, the yeah. level of how they feel about how honored they are by, you know, say that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's put it in uh Greenlee, Robert Greenlee's terms. He's a, uh, he was an AT&T and exe- executive uh, during the 60s and, you know, I guess 40s, 50s, 60s, but um, also a Quaker. And he would say of those two men that the true test of their leadership, or, or any women as well, right, the true, anybody, you know, children, adults, whatever, true test of a leader is whether or not other people around them become more wise, more free, more healthy, more autonomous, and better able to serve others. And that the least privileged of society are benefited, or at least not further deprived. Uh, I'm not sure about Bobby Knight, but it doesn't sound like that happens that much. Yeah, I mean it's hard, but I'm, it's like... I'm definitely, I'm definitely sure with Wooden that happens. Bobby Knight. Uh, now I don't know him personally, and I know a lot of people do. 
feel like they grew as a, as people in his presence as well. And, it, it, yeah, he's got good basketball knowledge. But that's almost the same as command and control leadership, which has been a notorious bastion of white privilege male leaders who are patriarchal and supremacist. Yeah. So call, calling that true leadership is kind of like garbage, you know. Yeah, that's so, right. That's what I was going to say. But, you know, it's also, at the same time, it seems like it's also, to an extent, uh, something of a complex equation. Maybe, maybe if only in the sense that like everybody's every, no, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got their flaws. So, you know, wooden is sort of like a high example because, you know, it's hard to find anybody to say a bad word about the guy, but I'm sure he had his, you know, maybe he had his faults. (laughs) Please tell me he had. I'm sure sure he had his flaws, but we, but we all know there's a difference between somebody. Let's just take, for example, example of marriage. It's the difference between a man who has 10 affairs and a man who has none. They're not the same person. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. So, so it's okay to notice that some people have many more flaws than others. Yeah. And, and for example, it'd be like saying, uh, you know, that I got stronger as a person when I came through because I came through uh, a very severely abusive childhood. Some people would say that, right? About they came through a very abusive childhood, make man they 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 had resilience and became stronger. But that doesn't make the abuser a good person or a quality leader. You know? Yeah, that's so, true. Well, and it's like yeah, and it's like fascinating when. You, you look at it like how certain people come through uh, similar experiences in totally different ways. And, um, you know, I, I guess I'd have one more question uh, on the leadership thing is that, like, you know, uh, with regard to whether or not leadership skills are innate, something that people have genetically or, or somehow, you know, are kind of imbued with and it's a gift, or do you think that these things can really be taught and developed? Yeah. Like, how does it happen? Like, you know, especially when it happens at a high level. Yeah. I think there's a little of both. Some people are natural, you know, just like they're they're natural point guards, and other people, you know, they're they're more uh, utilitarian as point guards, but they're effective, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the utilitarian might be better sometimes because they're not overrating themselves, you know. But there is a, there is a combination of both natural and learned, you know, in my opinion. And that paradox uh, just depends on where a person is at at what level of things they might need to learn, you know. Um, some things maybe a person can't get to all the way in their lifetime as a leader or as a person, uh, but they get a good distance into it, and maybe the people that come after them can get further into that, you know, that depth. So I think it's a combination. I think it's a mystery. Well, and it's also, I think, exposure to, you know, exposure to good leaders throughout your life, but particularly when you're young, doesn't hurt. Right, exactly. Always it, helps. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to have that to model and stuff, but... I don't know. It's fascinating stuff, and uh, I guess we close by asking you what you're working on now. Are you are you working on uh, another book or? Yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the question. I've been, uh, you know, I always carry around some poems and some stories, so I always kind of have those just to edit and work around on that you know, kind of that are semi or or closer to being completed. And then uh, and then the big work I'm working on is a novel. I'm in some of the final rounds of a novel that I've been working on for a couple of years. That's a L.A. border novel that uh, looks at the, you know, the potential of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the midst of an L.A. after an open border has come about. Ah, fascinating. See, I'm, I'm living here. I'm, I've become, like, uh, acutely aware of that and then also uh, fascinated with the whole border issue. So that sounds, uh, yeah. that sounds really interesting. I think it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, powerful and, and contemporary and hot topic the whole border and all the violence that surrounds the border right now you know well yeah and just the people what the people go through to get here and the the yeah. the uh the coyotes i'm sure you've read about mm-hmm. the coyotes who kind of 
take people across the border for a fee. And I mean, it's pretty exactly. grueling, grueling conditions to say the least. Yeah. yeah. And then just all the narcotics and the intensity of the wars basically across the border, you know? Yeah. It's weird. It's all simmering right down there, you know, yeah. more so, I think more so along the borders of Arizona and Texas and New Mexico than, yeah. uh, yeah. Ca- you know, California and Baja, but it's still there at Tijuana. I mean, there's still stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Shan, it's been great talking to you. Uh, everybody listening, American Masculine, a terrific collection of short stories uh, available now. Pick it up and uh, let's talk again when that next book comes out. Thanks a lot, Brad. And just really appreciate your work, too. And thrilled to be associated with The Nervous Breakdown and with you. All right, man. Take it easy. Take care. Later. Okay, guys, there you have it. That's it. That's Shan Ray, author of American Masculine, the story collection. If you want to check him out on the web, it's shanray.com, or you can check out his publisher, Gray Wolf, at graywolfpress.org. My web stuff. Don't forget this show has an official website, otherpeoplepod.com. You can follow it on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. You can follow me, at Brad Listy. Check out thenervousbreakdown.com. And if you want to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And, uh, you know, you can do whatever. Tell me a story, uh, file a grievance, sort of like I filed a grievance at the front end of this show, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the the long thought process that can sometimes stem from, uh, you know, anything really. And then you just start spiraling. It's strange. And, uh, you know, it sort of occurs to me that that might have been tedious. To me, it was sort of, you know, hopefully sort of funny. I sometimes grow concerned that what I think is sort of funny is not funny to other people. And, uh, or might strike them as being, uh, you know, heavy. I like funny, heavy or heavy, funny, heavy slash funny. So, uh, you know, the other part of it, or maybe the part of it that strikes me as being the funniest is the idea that I was essentially railing against, uh, certainty in that opening, uh, gambit. I was talking about how uncertain everything felt ultimately. And in the end, what it might be or, you know, what the case might be is that I, I might be certain about uncertainty, which then becomes like an, you know, part of a merciless loop. You know, it's ultimately me talking about how certain I am about how uncertain I am. Strange. So, uh, I'm going to stop there. Uh, I'm going to go read some books, hopefully. And maybe, uh, you know, if anybody sees the Buddha boy, tell him I want to, you know, I want to publish his memoir. I want that guy to write a memoir. Don't you, if you sat under a tree for six months, wouldn't you write a memoir? So if the Buddha boy is out there and he's listening, please email me and uh, let me know what you're thinking.